can open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. We will read our text, which is verses 18 through 27 in just a moment. To bring us up to speed from where we were last week, we saw that the love of the world and its sinful patterns is the kind of love that God hates. So we talked about what God hates a little bit last week. And we also talked about what we should hate too then. We should hate the things that God hates. And the world is the thing. He said those things, the world and its desires, its passions are fading away. They don't ever really satisfy us. Only the love of God in Jesus Christ can. So John was pretty clear in the text last week. He said the one who loves the Father does not love the world because the love of the Father is in him. The one who loves the world does not love the Father because the love of the world is in him. And so those things are diametrically opposed to one another. You cannot love the world and also love the Father. You cannot have one foot in the world and one foot following Jesus. It doesn't work that way. Jesus himself said, you must be prepared to give up everything in order to follow me. But we also know that Jesus has overcome the world by the word of God, which is how we still do it today. We don't just know who God is through his word. We actually get to know God, right? And there's the difference that I think you guys understand in that. So first John, our text today, chapter two, verses 18 through 27 is built on something that we are constantly fighting against in our American culture. We teach it to our children at an early age, but even us adults fail to master understanding it. And it has to do with John's phrase, which we'll read in just a moment, of the last hour. So just keep that in the back of your mind, something that we constantly fight against in our American culture, and it has to do with the last hour. So let's read our text and see if it becomes any more clear this morning. Chapter 2, starting with verse 18. Children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have the anointed, have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Lord, I pray that you would give clarity to your word. Help us understand it as you would have us by the Spirit's power this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. So John addresses children here for a second time. 
A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the whole Greek meaning of the word children and how John actually uses two different words for child or children here. This one in particular is the Greek word pahidion, and it means an infant or a partially grown boy or girl. So spiritually, this is referring to someone who is a, an immature or a young believer. So John is writing to them these things. And I think that it would make complete sense that John would write to immature believers about some of the dangers that comes from the outside and even from the inside, as we'll see, about kind of eroding some of the basis of their belief. He's warning them. They don't have the experience of the older adult Christians, the adult believers, or the spiritual parent, the fathers that he's written to, and they don't have the confidence of the energetic young men or young Christian, the youth. And so John warns them about people who oppose the Messiah, Antichrist. He says the Antichrist is coming. In fact, many of them are already here. Have you guys ever stopped to think about that? Antichrists are already here. Now, this word, Antichrist, is, is really unique to John. In fact, it's none, no other biblical author uses this word specifically. And it's really not found anywhere outside of his first and second letters here. It's plural, as he uses it, and it means, as Jason already mentioned, an opponent of the Messiah. So it's talking about people who oppose Jesus Christ. People who oppose him. So before we get too far into this discussion, let me circle back to the thing that I mentioned earlier, the thing that our culture is built upon, but still fights against that even as adults, even though we teach our children this at the very early age, we still wrestle and fail to master, and it has to do with time. Time. We all wrestle against it. It is, we, we, we are running out of time. Time seems to be slipping through our fingers, all of those kinds of things. John says, look at verse 18, he says, children, it's, it's the last hour. And when we hear these words, I would imagine that we think of a hundred different things. When John says the last hour, now let me, let me try to help us understand it a little bit. Um, how many of you, when you're pl- like planning to go on vacation by a show of hands, how many of you wait until like the last day beforehand to pack? Don't be shy. Don't be ashamed. I'm raising my hand with you. So I'm going to assume that those of you who did not raise your hands are the planners of the family that actually keep things going. Yeah. Okay. So even those of us who wait till the last minute to pack, we still plan a little bit in advance. Um, We have to request time off of work. We have to kind of save a little bit of money in preparation of our vacations. Uh, Many of us have to plan around school schedules and when school is in session and that sort of thing. Uh, My personal family uh, and the Ole Miss side, we've been planning a big family vacation for 2021, for next year. And we've been talking about it for over a year already. We're doing things uh, to set that vacation up, right? So it sort of feels pretty close. I mean, we've got countdowns going for it. Um, we've, we've already talked about some of the food that we're going to eat while we're there, uh, some of the places that we're going to visit and the things that we're going to do. And it's, it's really pretty exciting to think about. And 
it feels, as we talk and think more about it, it feels kind of close. Almost like it's just around the corner, even though it's months and months away. But in comparison to the overall time that we've been planning it, and in comparison to all of the eager expectations in what we're going to be doing when we go there and see the things, it doesn't seem like it's actually all that long of a wait anymore. So when John says, children, it is the last hour here, I think that idea is what he's got in his mind. It's the same kind of thing and same kind of feel. The apostle John wrote these words thousands, almost 2,000 years ago. So either he messed up and got it wrong with his timetable in saying that it's the last hour, or, and this is what I would propose to you this morning, or both John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and God himself have a different understanding of time than we do. I think that's pretty clear. If you've traveled outside of the United States or even some parts of the United States, time almost has a different meaning. Uh, when, when I've been on mission trips in Mexico specifically, they've said, hey, this meeting is going to start at 5 p.m. Nobody's there at 5 p.m. I mean, Paul and Kathy know, working with Guatemala, um, that's just not how, that's how time works there. So not only do we in America have a different concept of time, we're ruled how, by time, how many times have you looked at the clock already today? Some of you are looking at it already this morning. When's this over? So we have a different kind of concept of time. That's okay, but we need to recognize the difference. So back to the Antichrist. I, I don't think it's a, a, a surprise to any of you when it says that Antichrists are here, that people who oppose Jesus are here. Opponents of Christ are all around us. In fact, their voices are, seem to be growing louder every day. The fact that there are those who oppose Jesus is actually, John says, clear evidence that he's real and that his return is coming soon. But what do we mean when we say that sort of thing? And what do biblical authors mean when we say that Jesus is coming soon? It's important. I think this is actually sort of the rub. This is where the rubber hits the road with this. This is where we need to plant our feet firmly on clear biblical principles instead of the words of inconsistent date setters. Every generation of Christians, think about this, every generation of Christians have probably believed and taught that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime, in their generation. It was going to happen. But it hasn't. I just quickly Googled dates set for the second coming. There's a whole Wikipedia article about it. And they're very thorough in all of the mistakes that probably believers have made over the years. And they go all the way back. 1300s, 1400s of people saying, well, Jesus is going to return. In our lifetime, some of your all's lifetime, you can remember books being written people coming out on, on TV saying Christ is returning in 1981, 92. All of these dates are set, and guess what? It hasn't happened. He hasn't come back. I think we can fall into what I've heard coined as an end times feeding frenzy, where we get so 
Usually Christians get so obsessed with what's going to happen in the last days and the days preceding Christ's return that very little else seems to matter at all. We're so focused on this. The Antichrist, I would say big A, Antichrist, plays into all this because Revelation says that he's going to appear as part of the end of times, as part of the time before Jesus returns. But little A, Antichrist, they're, they're already here. Is the Antichrist alive right now? Lots of people might think that. You may hear people saying that. Are we living in the last days or are we living in the, the last hour as John says here? Maybe. The Antichrist might be alive today. I don't know. I don't think any of you know. We are living in the last days though, the last hour, but none of us knows the time of Jesus' return. Not a person here. The last hour or the last hours or the last days as you see it written sometimes, it signifies that period of time between uh, Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. So, so far, the last hour has lasted for 2,000 years or so. It's a long time. It's not the concept of time that we would have. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense to us. But remember, friends, God's concept of time is significantly different than ours. We have to understand that. We have to keep that in our minds. But as we think about the last hour, and if somebody says, hey, Jesus is coming soon, what does that do inside of you? Even, I think, non-believers who hear that, they get this sense of maybe urgency, maybe a little bit of anxiety. Certainly for, for Christians, as we read a text like this, we say, hey, Jesus is coming back. We don't know the time, but it's coming soon. It gives us some urgency, and it brings on maybe a mixture of emotions, uh, hope, expectancy, a little bit of anxiety, worry, it's all kind of mixed together. And just as a reminder, Christians from 2,000 years ago through, the, through today, they've lived with that same kind of feeling, thinking Jesus is returning soon. We are in the last hour according to Scripture, but I don't know that it means what a lot of people think that it means. Is the Antichrist alive today? I don't know. Is Christ's second coming going to happen while you and I are alive or in our children's lifetime? I don't know. If history is any example to us, probably not. Are we going to have to live through years of persecution and terrible conditions? Maybe. Is it wrong to look at Scripture about these things with confidence and hope? Absolutely not. But that's where we have to start and stop that discussion. Looking at Scripture. Christ is going to return. We should believe that because it's true. He's coming back. But remind us of what Jesus himself says in Matthew 24, verse 36. He says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So we shouldn't participate so heavenly in the end times feeding frenzy that we lose the perspective that Christ came to give us. That's what I think we need to focus on today. What did Jesus come to do for us? What did he say as he left? Go into all the world and preach the good news, right? Baptizing, making disciples 
in my name. That's the focus that Christ gave to be accomplished through his spirit. The fact that Jesus will come again should have an effect on us. But not despair, not depression, and not wacky theology. Knowing and believing that Christ's return is imminent should absolutely change the way we live. My family, I already mentioned, is going on vacation next year. So guess what? We don't spend money quite the same way right now in preparation for that. And you guys do the same thing when you're planning on going on a trip. You, you kind of tighten the budget a little bit in preparation of some extra expenses around that time. In anticipation of a big event like that, you make changes in your life. Guys, we're planning and expecting Christ to return soon, so we're going to have to change some things about the way we live. In fact, that's exactly what John has just been encouraging us to do before this, these verses this morning. He's been instructing people and explaining to them how life looks different when you know the Father. Your habits are going to change. Your desires are going to change. And what you love is going to change because of expecting Jesus to come again. Now, it's clear here in verse 18 that the Antichrist is coming, but John makes that distinction that some, many, in fact, have already come. So based on what we read in Scripture, it shouldn't come to a surprise as a surprise to any Christian that as we preach the gospel, people who oppose the gospel are going to be speaking just as loudly. What false teachings do they spread? Well, primarily, it's lies about who Jesus is. This is what John says. He talks, starts talking about lies. Those who oppose Jesus will lie about who he is and what he has done. And herein lies the subtlety of evil. It's subtle. Most of the time, when you are tempted to sin, it's not a temptation by the enemy to, some, to do, to do some, something completely out of character and totally off the wall, is it? Now, maybe sometimes it is. But the vast majority of the time, when we are tempted to sin, it's one little compromise at a time. It's one little thing. Don't worry about that word you said. It's not that big a deal. You hear all kinds of people say it. Not a big deal. Don't worry about that prolonged glance at that other person. Everybody sins in their heart like that. It's not a big deal. When we're tempted to sin, it's just usually a little bit that gets added more and more. And ever so slowly, we find ourselves in the clutches of sin dragged down further than we ever expected to be and weighed down more than we ever thought we could. Those who oppose Jesus usually won't tell you even to stop believing in Jesus. But you know what they're going to do? They're going to try to redefine who Jesus is. So they're not going to say, well, stop believing. They're just going to try to tell you Jesus isn't really who he is, isn't who he says he is. They want to darken the truth of what he's done for those who believe. And so they say things like this. They say, Jesus was a, he was a good guy. He was a moral guy. He was a good teacher. But was he really God? Come on. That seems a little silly for you to believe. 
Okay, Jesus died on the cross because he really believed in what he was doing. But his death, it can't actually take away somebody's sin. And besides, sin's not that big a deal anyway. Everybody has sin in their life. Who cares? You can know that you're dealing with an opponent of Jesus when they try to chip away at his deity or at his atoning work on the cross. When they start to attack those things, you know you're dealing with an antichrist. Here's the core of what Christianity is. Here's the seeds, the core, kids. It's the person and work of Jesus. Who he is and what he has done. That is the heartbeat of our faith, brothers and sisters. And if we get those things wrong, then we're going to get it wrong everywhere else too. Antichrists today lie and deny that Jesus is really the Son of God. God the Son. Look at verse 19 again. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Now maybe you've heard it said, maybe you believe it yourself, uh, heard it said that spiritually everybody's on the same team. No matter what you believe, we're all kind of pushing towards the same goal. So we just need to put our differences aside and come together in unity. You've heard that said. Maybe you think that's true. There are certainly situations where we do need to put differences aside and come together. But not when it comes to what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is. It's there on those things that we must stand firm without wavering at all. In verse 19, John makes a clear distinction between us and them, Christians and antichrists. You don't lock arms with these kinds of people because they are not of you. You don't share the same core. You're not on the same team, in fact. They might make it seem that way in the beginning, but at some point it's going to become clear that they are not of the Father, they're of the world. So, it's, he says, had they been of us, they would have continued with us. But they didn't continue so that it would be clear that they weren't for Jesus. They were against him. So the us in this verse is born-again believers. They remain. They abide. The first verse of Jude says that believers are called. They are beloved in God the Father. And they are kept. For Jesus Christ. In fact, interestingly enough, our Baptist faith and message, Article 5, God's purpose of grace. I just want to read that. I don't know how many of you all are really well versed in the Baptist faith and message, but you get a little bit of it this morning. This says, this is what our church adheres to. It says, all true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by his spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the spirit, impair their graces and comforts, and bring repro reproach on the cause of Christ, and temporal judgments on themselves, yet they shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. That kind of seems too good to be true, doesn't it? And yet, 
Jesus had the audacity to say the same thing in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, he says, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one, so who does no one involve here? Who does that include? Those without you and you. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one, Jesus says. Now we know that this was a, this was a really controversial thing for Jesus to teach about because in the very next verse in John chapter 10, it says that the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They did not like Jesus talking about him being God and him holding his people in his hand. They wanted to stone him for that reason. Because Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God in the flesh, sinners saved by grace can be 100% confident in their security, in their eternal security. John reinforces Jesus' teaching by equating Jesus to God in verse 23 of 1 John chapter 2. He says, if you have one, you have the other. You genuinely have it, have the Son, well, then you genuinely have the Father because they are one. And so if believers are held within the grasp of Jesus, if believers are held in the grasp of Jesus and we're all held in the grasp of the Father, why would we think we could remove ourselves from that situation? especially knowing that it wasn't our effort that got us there in the first place. It was all by grace. And so this is what gives us confidence as believers. Not our own goodness, not our own rule keeping, but because Jesus is God in the flesh. And in Christ, and because of Christ, nobody can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Nobody can snatch you out of Jesus' hand. John then goes on to mention two reasons why Christians persevere. The the anointing of the Spirit and the abiding Word of God. Look at verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. So Christians have been regenerated or made alive by the Holy Spirit. They have been transformed then inwardly as well. In the Old Testament... This kind of regeneration would have been demonstrated by physically the anointing of oil, physical oil. We see it also in the New Testament as a way to to visibly signify that someone was going to be, someone was empowered by the Holy Spirit or set apart to do the work of God for healing, that sort of thing. It was a way to show special dedication to God. Believer, you have been set apart for God and by God to glorify Him in this life. And now you have the internal and abiding teacher who will guide you in all knowledge and in all truth, verse 27 says. So let me, if you look at verse 27, let me just make a comment here about what I think 27 does not mean. Because when you look at it, you might be tempted to think, well, if I'm anointed by the Spirit in Christ and I'm a believer... Maybe I don't need to go to church. I don't need anybody else to teach me. I've got it all. I don't think it means that, especially when you factor in all of the rest of Scripture. 
I don't think it means that you don't need human teachers anymore. Why, why would Jesus tell people to go and preach, to teach and make disciples if they didn't need anybody but the Spirit? Why would Paul say that in order for people to hear the gospel, someone needs to go and to preach the gospel if we didn't need human teachers? I think where some of the confusion might be is when John wrote this, and we've talked about this a couple of times now, there were, there were groups who were disavowing and disagreeing with what John and other Christians at the day were teaching about Jesus, about his deity, about his humanity. In fact, some of them even claimed that you could have Jesus, you could believe that, that's fine, but you needed this special elevated knowledge in order to really know him. And of course, only they could give you that knowledge, is what they were being told. So, John was making it real clear here in this text by saying it this way, that the timeless truths found in the Old Testament, the timeless truths found in Jesus' teaching and also in the apostles' teaching was more than sufficient. And they didn't need any extra biblical teaching outside of what God was giving them in this place. John's already said in 1 John that they were from the beginning Jesus, these teachings, this word was from the beginning. So they didn't need these other guys' advanced teachings at all. They'd been taught these things, the truth of the gospel by the Spirit through these trusted men. And so then, therefore, they had knowledge unto salvation. Brothers and sisters, if we, if you hear maybe anything this morning, hear this, that Christ and his word are more than sufficient teachers, and we are supposed to, as John says, abide in them. Abide in them. If and when we do, God makes good on his promise of verse 25. If we abide, if the spirit abides, if the word abides in us, what is it that God promises? Verse 25, eternal life. Eternal life. Maybe, just, just to be clear, maybe we don't all understand this, but the moment of salvation, the moment that God saves you, eternal life starts then. Because though your, your, though your body may get old and begin to break down and not work as well as it used to, your spirit lives on, brothers and sisters. We were given eternal souls. From the moment of salvation, eternal life begins. Look back at verse 24 for just a moment. John says very distinctly there, he says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. From the beginning. John uses that phrase to refer to Jesus himself as well as the words of Jesus. So he's saying, if his words, if Jesus Christ abides in you, man, then you're going to be able to abide in God the Son and in God the Father. You, that's true of you. If you've got one, you've got them both. But if you deny one, you don't have either of them. So including verse 26, we see that false teachers are going to try to deceive Christians about three big things. Who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus has said. Now think about all the opposition to Christianity that you've heard over the last year. They all attack one of those things, don't they? Who Jesus is, what he's done, or what he has said. 
But verse 17 has told us that those who continue to do the will of God abide forever. I've mentioned this before. What does the word abide mean? Abide means to stay or to continue or to remain. So John used abide 23 times in the book of 1 John. And six of them are in just our text today. Abide is a big thing that John is trying to communicate. And it carries this idea with it, this idea of union and communion with Jesus Christ. So believers are bound to Christ, united with him. We're also in fellowship with him. We have communion with him. He is all we need. Brothers and sisters, he's all you have. But praise God, he's all you need. So when we begin to think that something, we, we have to have something to go along with what God has already given us in his word through his son, or that we have to supplement the Bible with something else, like those things aren't enough, then we begin to think like the very people who were opposing Jesus in John's time. We begin to think like the Antichrist. We begin to have the spirit of an Antichrist. We are buying in to what the false teachers were saying in John's day. But people today still say these same things, don't they? And lots of people even with a church background or even with fellowship inside the church are saying these things. False teachers are going to tell you that you need something other than Jesus or something more than Jesus. But John says, look at verse 22 and verse 27. What does John call these people? He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't really probably think of their feelings. He calls them liars. To believe and to teach that you need something other than Jesus makes you a liar. So if you're a believer and you're sitting here this morning, you have the Spirit of God within you teaching you. Praise the Lord. Thank you, God, for Him. The indwelling spirit will always, will always agree with this. Don't claim that God is leading you to do something that the Bible teaches against. Because if that's what you're thinking the spirit is leading you to do, you can know real quick it's not. The spirit of God always agrees with the word of God because he inspired it. It's always going to agree with God's word. It's always going to lead you into righteousness, not into sin, not into the ways of the world. So antichrists are those who oppose who Jesus is. They oppose what Jesus has done and they oppose what Jesus has said. And they try to chip away at the bedrock, the core of Christian faith. And John is warning against it. And so what does John say? How do we combat those lies? What are Christians to do? Well, certainly it's right to surround yourself with other believers and Christian friends and influences that are going to point you back to the gospel, not to what they think you want to hear, not what you might even want to hear in the moment, but to the truth. Surround yourself with people that way. It's right to seek out accountability. It's right to seek out truth 
But the biggest and first thing that John says here for believers to do is in verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Let God's word abide in you. So ask yourself these questions this morning. Are you listening to those who oppose Jesus in your life? Or is God's word abiding in you? This is the crux of what John is getting at here. This is why he taught and why we looked at last week that stark contrast between those who love the world and those who love the Father. Do you love the Father or do you love the world? I can't answer that question for you. But God can. God can reveal it. The Spirit of the Lord can work in you. And so I would hope and pray that in order to combat the lies of the enemy, that we would abide in his word. And you can find, you can find any number of Bible reading plans, of, of Bible studies. If you would like to start somewhere, get a hold of me. I would love to pass some information along and get you started on some things. And we can, we can work through it together. It's not always easy. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you understand that as soon as you say, man, I'm going to be dedicated to do this, your time starts to run out and you get real short and your days get long and you just, there's something else to do. John says, abide in the word, abide in the son. Remain in him. Don't listen to the Antichrist. Don't listen to those who oppose the Messiah. They don't have anything that you need because everything that they can offer, John has already said, is passing away. But the one who remains, the one who does the will of the Father, he abides forever. Let that be true of us this morning. Let's pray. Father, may we abide in you. God, we want to be people who listen to your word, who read it, who meditate on it, who are driven by it, not by those who oppose you or try to convince us that we need some other kind of teaching or some other kind of thing. Lord, break down the things that we trust in outside of you and your word. Because we get so tempted and we get so wrapped up in thinking that other things, things of this life, will satisfy us and make us happy. And they're all just lies. Outside of Jesus, outside of the things ordained in your word, those things are just lies. And so I pray that we would not be tempted by the things of this world, but that we would be wholly devoted to your word, to the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to grab hold of your work on the cross, to understand and live in light of who you are and what you have taught. Lord, that our foundation would be absolutely firm. Lord, we thank you for how we can walk with you by your grace. And I pray that you cause us to do that more and more. Amen.